Well, thank you, Parker, and good morning, everyone. What a privilege we have uh, to have God's breathe out word, and a privilege that he applies it to our hearts um, by his Holy Spirit. So let's move into the book of Colossians um, and continue to pursue his purposes for us as we gather and assemble together this morning. We are in the book of Colossians. And recall that Paul wrote this letter to a young church. He had an awareness of the church, but he had never visited them. Uh, Colossae, it's in the Lycus Valley. It's 100 miles east of Ephesus, where Paul had spent a couple of years teaching. And Paul is now in prison. And he's writing out of concern that there were heretical influences in this church in Colossae. And they needed reminding Reminding that Christ is supreme, that he is sufficient, and they should reject, they should flee any program that's being offered to have fulfillment through some kind of special access to supernatural powers or through visions or treating their bodies harshly as a way to gain some favor. These were uh, dangerous diversions that the uh, were present in the church in Colossae, and they needed to abide and grow in the fullness of Christ. So recall our outline uh, for the letter. It began with uh, an introduction and then um, a section on the supremacy of Christ, raising up Christ as supreme. And then the section that we're in is Paul's encouragement to hold fast, hold firmly to Christ. And then uh, soon in chapter 3, there'll be instructions on living this new life. Let's zoom in on number 2 in the outline. Uh, Encouragement to hold firmly to Christ and a warning about false spirituality. He says, don't let anyone kidnap you. That's verse 8. Don't let anyone condemn you, verse 16. And don't let anyone disqualify you, verse 18. And we're in that first um, element there. Don't let anyone kidnap you or hold you captive. Last week, Parker introduced this section that contains verse 8. Don't let anyone kidnap you. It's a strong admonition. This morning, we're going to continue with that paragraph Let's read Colossians 2, 9 through 15. And I'll begin just with a bit of verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. And then verse 9. For in him, that's in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you've been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions Having canceled out the certificate 
the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So our section is really 11 through 15, but we're going to just review a little bit, uh, starting at verse 9. How does one protect against being kidnapped or hijacked or held hostage by cultural enticements, by false teaching? Paul's approach is to focus on the riches that we have in Christ. My good friend, a dentist in New Jersey where we used to live, he got a lot of advice uh, on various topics from the people that he was uh, treating. And uh, one day he passed this on to me. He said, you know how to have a weed-free yard? In New Jersey, you can have grass, actually. A weed-free yard? He said, don't emphasize killing the weeds. Emphasize growing good grass. And so Paul, my friend, uh, emphasized uh, fertilizing, aerating, reseeding the, the brown spots, he used some um, weed killer or went out there and took care of dandelions too. But his focus was on growing good grass. And I remembered that because uh, I was kind of a new homeowner and all ears about how to have green grass. Um, but that's like what Paul is doing in this section, uh, 11 through 15. He is rehearsing the riches of Christ so that we will treasure them. And that is a counter uh, to the false teaching and enticements uh, that were coming their way. So here then, on the next slide, is our outline uh, for today. Treasure your riches in Christ. Let no one hijack you from the riches in Christ. You already have the fullness of Christ. You already have fellowship of Christ. You already have freedom in Christ. So that's our outline. There'll be an aside um, about the relationship between baptism and circumcision. You saw that as we read. Those are held uh, closely uh, together. So we'll talk about that relationship. But the main point is you already have Christ. And so this is Paul emphasizing the growing of good grass. So we'll look at uh, first a uh, little bit of review. Sorry, I want to look first at a little bit of a high level. Two things that come out of the text at a very high level. And the first is, uh, next slide, if you can see I've uh, made some words white. It's a focus on Christ. Paul urges us to treasure Christ and more particularly treasure our closeness to him, we are in him. We are with him. He bears the fullness of deity and we are in him. The one who's who is the fullness of God. What a privilege. And the obvious implication that comes from that is it makes no sense to seek out some kind of further access. We have it in Christ. 
We already have complete access and we must abide in him who is God himself. Jesus makes an appeal to this in John chapter 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So at a high level, we have Christ. We should abide in him. It's a privilege. The fullness of deity dwells in him and he abides with us. And then the second high level thing, the next slide, I've highlighted uh, different words. But the high level aspect in our text is note Paul's focus on what God has already done. All these past tense verbs. You've been made complete. You were circumcised, buried, raised up. He made you alive. He's forgiven you. He's canceled out this certificate of debt against you. He's taken it out of the way. He's nailed it to the cross. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's made a public display of them. He's triumphed over them. All these things are already done. And so the implication is it makes no sense to seek out by some special access or by asceticism to get his favor that he would possibly do something for me that I need. He's already done all that is needed in Christ. So those two high level uh, points uh, will be expanded on um, as we go through these verses two or three at a time. Um, we are in Christ and he's already given us lavish riches of his grace. The Colossian believers need to hold to this and recognize that there's no need uh, for something more. So he'll go on in the next section. Should we um, go after flagellation or other means of maybe praying or to angels or seeking out the favor of uh, other spiritual rulers and authorities? And he says, no, treasure your riches and see that no one takes you captive through going after those things. They're not going to provide any um, means of spiritual fullness. You already have it in Christ. Don't be defrauded, he says. Don't be held hostage uh, by these teachings of mystical things. So let's take uh, these verses uh, two or three at a time. And we'll start uh, with verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. This we had last week. This was uh, the message from last week, but I just want to review it a little uh, bit. Let no one exclude you from the riches in Christ. Continue your walk in the way that you began it. Be steady. Be unwavering in your faith. You already have the fullness of Christ. You're complete in him. He's all you need. It's uh, the two themes that uh, he introduces in verse 10. One is you are 
completely fit. God has made you completely fit. Um, God has made you completely fit for life in Him now and for eternity. And Paul, uh, Peter, sorry, presses this home in Second Peter chapter 2, or chapter 1, he says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. He's given us the power, His, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then the second point he brings out in verse 10 is that we share with Christ the freedom that he won through the victory over all spiritual powers. We share that with him. His victory we share with him. So the first treasure is the fullness that we have in Christ. You already have fullness in Christ. And the second Treasure, starting in verse 11, is fellowship with him. You already have fellowship with Christ. He's purified you. He's brought you into union with himself to live with his power and with his care. It seems likely that the false teachers were offering some sort of a deeper union in a special way, with God. It's a spiritual prize that they could have if they sought after it in the way that the false teachers um, were suggesting. They could gain some in, a deeper union with God. And Paul's anxious to show them, you already have what fellowship is possible with Christ. He's in you and you in him. Although we don't know for sure, it may be that the false teachers were even urging Gentiles to be circumcised as a means of purification or showing their dedication, of consecrating themselves um, to become more acceptable to God so they'd no longer be dragged down by the um, pull of the flesh. And if that is true, then these words of uh, Paul's would be specially fitting. He says, you're already circumcised, spiritually circumcised. You've been cleansed by the dominance of your sinful human nature. Christ has stripped it away and caused you to die to it. So you have no need for physical circumcision because you already have something greater. The spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of Christ. In the next section, uh, next week, verse 16 and following, um, Paul's going to denounce those who pursue self-abasement, saying it's going to gain you nothing. And in three, chapter 3, verse 11, Paul's going to say that every Christian has become a new man. And this renewal, in this renewal, there's no th such thing as circumcision or uncircumcision. Christ has already made you clean. So he then says, you were already buried, you were already raised with Christ in baptism. 
You're already buried and you're erased. You are identified with him, united to him. There's no deeper experience or union with Christ than you already have received. Your conversion and baptism, those encompass a complete transformation of your person. As Christ died for your sins and was buried, sorry, as Christ died for your sins and was buried, your old self, enslaved by sin and controlled by selfish passions, was buried with him. Not in the sense that you're free from the presence of sin, uh, but rather that that old self has been condemned. It's been punished. It's been laid aside. And there's now in the new you, no more condemnation is possible. You've been buried and you've been raised. So your burial with Christ has broken that link, that link um, in which spiritual death is the wages of sin because death has already happened to my old self. The new you can no longer be separated from God because you're united to Christ. We're joined with him in his resurrection from the grave. This resurrection from the grave, it's not talking here about our future bodily resurrection. No, it's... um the raised life that we're living now, so to speak. And Paul comes back to this in chapter 3, in verse 1. He says, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. That's our raised life that we live in him now. So we live to please him through the power of God that brought Christ forth from death to life. That power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power by which we live. Paul reminds us of the greatest manifestation of God's power that has ever been seen, and that is the raising of his son from the dead. That's the power that we have to keep in step with his Holy Spirit's leading in our life. What richer fellowship might we have? He says... You have already the fellowship with Christ. So Paul says, look at the riches you have in Christ. Treasure those riches. You have full fellowship with him. His work of forgiveness, of purification of who you are, of your heart. It's already yours. You're united with him as much as can be possible in this present age. There is an age to come when we will know him fully. But in this age, we have all we can have in Christ. Therefore, he says, live in the light of these truths. Do not be hijacked into believing that there's some additional religious religious ritual or harsh treatment of the body that can take you to a new level of fellowship with um, God and separation from the temptations of the flesh. Yes, our joy is that we're fully cleansed from all unrighteousness. Yet, we do not have the privilege yet of freedom from sin. No, sin remains. 
Sadly, we're living in fallen bodies, aren't we? With their passions and appetites. And this is going to continue until we die. Either until we die or until we gain a new body in Christ. That's the sad news. But happily, separation from God is over. In this life, we do need to strive against sin by considering ourselves dead to it. Paul's going to bring this out in verse 5 of chapter 3, our deadness to sin. But elsewhere, he says, the life which I now, I, Paul, now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, yes, we live in the flesh and nevertheless, we have the power that raised Christ from the grave to live to please him. At this point, I'm going to uh, just pursue this aside, this connection that's uh, in these verses between circumcision and baptism. And then we'll come back to our main outline. So the Old Testament rite of circumcision, it was uh, it marked a Jewish boy as a member of the people whom God promised to lead, to provide for, and to protect. Stripping away the foreskin represented his need for cleansing at the very core of his being in order to be acceptable to God. John MacArthur writes, No other part of human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin in as much as the part of man that produces life. And all he produces is sinful. It goes from generation to generation. And God uses the term circumcision metaphorically in the Old Testament, commanding his people, circumcise your heart, he says, and stiffen your neck no longer. That is, they're to purify themselves, to be set apart for God, to serve him and to keep his commandments. That's what he means metaphorically by circumcise your heart. And our passage takes this symbolic meaning of a circumcision of the heart even further, showing that circumcision is an Old Testament type that is a forward-looking picture of the spiritual cleansing that God performs within the inner being of a person who follows Christ. It's the anti-type that Paul now has in view. That is a circumcision made without hands. That is the anti-type, the thing that the type was picturing, is a thing made without hands. The fulfillment of that picture was set up by the physical circumcision of a Jewish boy. And now, um, in our text, Paul places baptism very close to circumcision. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. What then is baptism? The reference in verse 12, that's a reference to this physical ordinance of. Excuse me, I lost my place. (laughs) Um, It's a reference to this physical ordinance, this immersion in water. Notice the parallel language. 
you go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, a very similar language there as we have here. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He links baptism with death and burial in Romans, just as we have here in Colossians. So in both of these passages, Romans and Colossians, Paul references the rite of baptism. And he uses it as a shorthand to represent the larger whole, namely the whole conversion and initiation into Christ experience. It encompasses the Christian's transformation from the old man to the new. Our conversion, it begins with spiritual death, spiritual deadness, becoming sensitized to sin, repenting, having faith in Christ's sufficient work alone for forgiveness, burial of the old self, being reborn into a new self in the likeness of God, and finally undergoing the public initiation into union with Christ by baptism in water, in immersion in water. Paul means all of this when he mentions baptism here. You've been buried with Christ, in which you also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, permit me a little illustration, a personal one. When Linda and I were newly married and still starry-eyed over the fact that it was real, uh, we would occasionally look at our rings and we'd bump them into each other and I would say, Shazam! We're really married. <laughs> uh, it's as if the rings made it so. We knew, of course, that what united us was our commitment to one another, that we'd made it public before the Lord. Um, and we were licensed by the state of Iowa, and it was memorialized by the rings on our fingers. Uh, these rings continue to remind us and to testify to others that we're united in a lifelong commitment of marriage. Our rings memorialize our marriage in the sense that um, they help us to and others to remember that we've become one flesh through vows made before God. So shazam, Linda. <laughs> um, but baptism is like that. Uh, the rings that remind us helpfully of who we are, who, if we, who we have become. We do it publicly before the Lord to remind us and to testify to others that we're united in Christ, permanently identified with him, freed from the bondage to sin, transformed with new life in him. And Paul uses the word baptism as a symbol or a synonym for all of this in a similar way that I might say, I've got the ring, meaning I'm married I'm a married man. So we've uh, looked at how physical circumcision um, pictures, spiritual circumcision, a removal of the body of the flesh, 
as Paul puts it. And then we looked at baptism as standing for the whole conversion, initiation experience of a believer. Now we ask the question, what's the relationship between baptism and circumcision? Closely related in the text there. Is the New Testament rite of baptism a replacement for the Old Testament rite of physical circumcision? And uh, I will present the answer is no. While they're related, they're also significantly different. Now I realize that... um, not everyone has this point of view. And uh, listen to Paul, uh, John Piper um, speak on this passage. He says, most of the theologians that I have learned from, most of them dead, have taken another view on this. And he respects that. Um, and yet, I will make the case um, for the answer being no. Um, They're significantly different. For example, physical circumcision in the Old Testament. It memorialized God's covenant promises with Abraham and those promises carrying forward to Abraham's seed. Yahweh would be their God and they would be his people. And while God did call the Jewish people to be holy, he said, for I am holy. That was not a prerequisite for the Jewish boy to be circumcised. The prerequisite was being born to Jewish parents. That's when you would be circumcised. Um, Rather, um, the be holy, for I am holy, was God's call on that Jewish boy's life as he grew up. His birth, being descended from Abraham, is what placed him into that Old Testament covenant that was made to Abraham, that he would, that God would be their God, Yahweh would be their God, and they would be his people. And by contrast, the rite of circumcision memorializes a birth and a death, or let me say a burial and a being raised from the grave, as Paul puts it in verse 12. And integral to the meaning of baptism is that phrase at the end of our section through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead who raised Jesus from the dead so faith is an inseparable uh, part of baptism of what baptism memorializes faith needs to precede that baptism death to sin spiritual birth it's a major distinction from what physical baptism um, from the physical birth placed that placed a Jewish boy under the covenant. So while there are close parallels that exist between the physical rite of circumcision, the physical um, rite of baptism, the two are different. And this particular difference has real practical significance. And that significance is, that, is the reason that um, we do not baptize infants at crossroads. So we do um, accept into membership those who hold otherwise. uh, We ask for an explanation of your understanding of that. Um, But we do not baptize uh, infants. 
So finally, notice that the parallel that Paul draws in this section is not between baptism, the rite of baptism and physical circumcision. In fact, he excludes that comparison. He says a circumcision made without hands. He says it's a a spiritual circumcision in Christ. We're cleansed from a life dominated by sin. He strips away those controlling passions. And baptism is the capstone event of that process of conversion. And what a fitting initiation it is. Our life begins with a burial and our, um, of the old life. And it proceeds to forgiveness and then being raised from the dead. And the waters of baptism picture this. So the raising from the dead is with him. That is, we're buried and raised with our Savior, who himself was buried and raised from the grave. And that brings us back to our main flow. You already have, we said, the fullness of Christ. You're complete in him. You already have fellowship with Christ. You're in him. You live with him. You're united. Having been buried and raised with him. And then the third aspect, beginning in verse 13, you've, you already have complete freedom through Christ. I'll read this section, uh, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I'll just read that one more verse. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So you already have complete freedom Through Christ. In spelling out the completed works of Christ for our salvation, Paul refutes any form of teaching that we can accomplish certain works to appeal to him by certain acts of uh, self-denial. To convince him to do something perhaps greater than what he's already done. What he's already accomplished for us. And look at the sheer immensity of what he has done in bringing us from death to life, from slavery to freedom. God has brought us forth to life. We're born free, so to speak. And this, this section is such a great expression of core gospel truths. Um, Paul sets them out dramatically with pictures. The Colossian false teachers seem to be enticing the church toward mysteries, hidden knowledge, angels that uh, maybe they can reach through prayers or worship who may be difficult to contact. But Paul counters this um, by showing what God has done publicly. No difficulty in understanding it. It's there uh, before us. And Paul lays it out. It's there for us to appreciate 
and behold. He begins by reminding us of the starting point. You were dead in your transgressions. You're godless heathens. You had no place in our connection to God's covenant community. Those who were Gentiles, which we think most of them in Colossae were. Only a dramatic work. Lazarus, come forth! Could change the situation. Dead in sins. A dramatic work of God was needed to change it. And that's exactly what God has done. He says, he made you alive. He gives life to the spiritually dead. This is God's great creative act, making alive what was dead. But not only this, he says, he made you alive together with him. Bring us back to you already have fellowship with Christ. Uh, He made you alive together with him. It's a reminder that our new life is in union with Christ. Specifically, the connection that Paul makes here is that our union with Christ is a union in his resurrection, in his being raised from the grave. It's the means by which all of our transgressions are forgiven. And we are raised with him to this newness of life. And then in verse 14, the picture is a certificate of indebtedness. It's a promissory note we signed and we cannot pay. Impossible uh, to pay. And the note states that although that we're bound to keep God's laws, his rightful requirements, and we haven't done it, and we thereby owe him a great debt. The certificate is legal and it's heavy. It's inescapable. The demands on us are inescapable and we have no ability to pay. There used to be a thing, debtor's prison. I don't think there's so much of a thing like that uh, these days, but it's a grim situation. But then he says, but God has canceled the debt. It's a heavy debt against us. And he marked it canceled. He took it out of the way. He didn't just overlook it and set it aside. No, he dramatically nailed it to the cross of Christ. Recall that the Roman practice for one who's crucified, as we saw with Jesus, the uh, charge was uh, above his head. The charge for Jesus said, uh, King of the Jews. And that's because he claimed uh, to be their king. He accepted that uh, claim, but that was the charge. And now we see another picture it's, uh, it didn't happen in reality, but our debt nailed to the cross of Christ. Uh, he has paid it. Um, we see it marked um, paid. So God says, see, my son paid it in full. The debt that, w- that uh, had us in debtor's prison, impossible to pay, is paid in full. And then verse 15, one more final dramatic picture. Paul shows a further open and public nature of what Christ accomplished on the cross. At the cross, God disarmed all of the spiritual foes of mankind. That is Satan, who's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. 
as well as all the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places in Ephesians 6. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The picture is a triumphal procession in which the Roman generals and their conquering armors are parading through town and straggling behind them are the vanquished foes dragging themselves along. There was no possibility for anyone in town to miss it. It was a public display of the vanquished foe. And that's the picture that Paul presents for us. They were shamed and exposed to the public gaze. Everyone could see there was no longer anything to fear because the foes were conquered. It's a dramatic picture of the overflow, overthrow of Satan working through the rulers and authorities. Think of the rulers and authorities. Rome, the um, most powerful uh, and best government in the history of the world to that day. Israel, the best religion um, in the, that the world had ever known. And these conspired against Jesus to put him on the cross. Rome and Israel were angry at Jesus because he was a challenge to their sovereignty. N.T. Wright continues, They stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, celebrated a triumph over him. These were the best. Um, but then Paul declares that on the contrary, on the cross, God was stripping them naked, was holding them up to public contempt, contempt and was leading them in God's own triumphal procession in Christ, the crucified Messiah. So Christ breaks that last hold that the powers had over his people by dying on our behalf. This at the very cross on which those powers of Satan seemed to have the upper hand. It's a poignant and dramatic picture of irony. And notice again that Paul is countering the notion that spiritual freedom is that something is something that can only be understood and attained by a favored few. These are public. Dick Lucas puts it this way. It is impossible for anyone to know this king, Christ, and not to know his glorious victory. Freedom from demonic forces is no subsequent work of grace to be sought at the hands of God. It is simply the gospel privilege for all. For every true believer, it is written that they have already come to the fullness of life in Christ, the one who is the head of all rule and authority. So let's just uh, summarize a bit. In this whole letter, Paul is dealing wisely with dangerous influences and false teaching within the church at Colossae. Church he hasn't visited personally, but he knows of it because he's connected. And this section that we began in verse 
8 um, that has 11 through 15 that we dealt with today um, shows a couple of important elements encountering false and dangerous teachings. One, clarify what the dangers are. Don't let anyone kidnap you, he said in verse 8. Don't let anyone condemn you, he said in verse 16. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Those are the dangers. You may be kidnapped, condemned, disqualified. Lay those out there. But it's interesting, as a second point, that Paul doesn't even give this teaching a name. We actually have to work fairly hard to understand its specific elements um, and uh, speak to those. He doesn't present the teaching in exhaustive detail. Rather, he's emphasizing the truths that refute the claims. Charles Erdman writes, When Paul now reaches the very heart of this of his letter, the apostle dwells so eloquently upon the deity of Christ, the dignity and completeness of believers, that the readers left with some uncertainty as to the exact system of error against which the Colossians were to be on their guard. His approach then, Paul's approach then, is the, in the words of my friend, don't emphasize identification and killing of weeds. Grow good grass, he says, says my friend. Concentrate on that. So that is treasure the riches of Christ. Treasure what you already have. You already have the fullness of Christ. You're complete. You already have fellowship with Christ. You're cleansed. You're united to him. You already have freedom with Christ. Your debt is paid. The victory is won. What's the implication for us? I think primarily the implication is to treasure your riches in Christ. How? How practically uh, can we do this? Well, just a few. They're very basic things. Build gospel content into your conversations of life. That is, rehearse with others the riches of God's forgiveness and grace, of your adoption as sons, and of his present love and care for the course of your life. Work these into your conversations with like-minded believers. Remind yourselves of these things so that you treasure them more deeply over time. And talk about the treasures when you sit at home, using words from Deuteronomy. When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. In doing so, you'll impress on yourself the value of these gospel truths. And you'll impress that value on your children and on others within your sphere of life, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then concentrate on growing good grass is my final practical application. And by that, I mean this. In Paul's words from Philippians 4, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Make a practice of that. Dwelling 
on what is true and honorable and right, dwelling on things of excellence and worthy of praise. This is good advice uh, for life, but it's instruction to us in our Christian walk. Well, thank you for the opportunity of us speaking God's word this morning to you. We'll close in prayer, and then we'll sing and have a benediction. Oh, Lord God, we praise you for vanquishing all rulers and authorities arrayed against your Son. Thank you for triumphing over them, demonstrating your power by raising Jesus from the dead. Thank you that in your great love, you sent him to die. You raised him for our sake. God, we pray that you would impress on us the treasures that belong to us in him. The fullness of being made complete in him. The fellowship of being forgiven sinners. And the freedom that is ours. No fear of condemnation. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We're ever grateful for these treasures. Receive our worship, we pray. Amen.